welcome to another special Pizza Party podcast interview where we got a special guest in. Who are you? I'm Pan Pizza. I'm Peter Chung. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an animation director, writer, producer, designer. I do storyboards and um, right now I'm working on several different projects. One is a project of my own that I've developed and created, but mostly I'm known for having created Eon Flux mm-hmm. back in the 90s for MTV. Are you allowed to say? And, what, oh, sorry. Yeah. Are you allowed to say what your current project is? Well, I can't really say very much. You know, there's a lot of uh, animation for adults being developed right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm really trying to trying uh, trying try to make that work. So I, you know, for 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 many years after doing Yon Flux, you know, I had been trying to produce more animation for adults mm-hmm. um, along that line, but it seems like uh, the networks and studios are only interested in comedy. Yeah. And so there is a lot of animated comedy, but there's no animated drama, at least uh, not until pretty recently. That Some have started to show up. Yeah, streaming services seem to like be more experimental with their stuff. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's ironic in a way because um, what I'm trying to do is, <laughs> at least in my view, it's much more mainstream than experimental. Um, because mm-hmm. I, I think that my experience on Neon Flux, you know, even though it has a cult following, I, I, I feel like it was um, maybe a, a bit of a niche uh, audience uh, yeah. that, that 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 followed it. I mean, it's a very odd show, and uh, um, my other co-host that was supposed to be here, Izzy, uh, she tr- she was watching it, but uh, let me let me read you one of her tweets that she posted about watching Eon Flux for the first time. Let me read this. Okay, so I'm watching Eon Flux for the first time in prep for the podcast, and I'm confused AF. But according to Wikipedia, the episodes I watched are season three, even though I'm watching disc one. Turns out you have to put in disc three to get the start of the series. They put part of the special features because they're not technically episodes. <laughs> I know you purposely made uh, Eon Flux to be confusing just so people will rewatch and make more interpretations out of it, right? Well, I wouldn't say that I deliberately made it to be confusing. I deliberately, I certainly de- deliberately made it to be ambiguous mm-hmm. because my idea of, uh, you know, what's interesting about watching a story is not the things like backstory and canon, things that people obsess over. You know, I think that all of that is actually a mistake mm. um, because once you watch something that has a set canonical narrative, I think you're kind of done with it. Yeah, and you know, I was hoping that I was, I, I, I'm hoping to make work that is going to continue to be rewatchable over and over again. And um, it's much more to me. It's much more about the experience that you have while you're watching a film, mm-hmm. and less so about the the fictional details. Because if you write enough stories, what you realize is that a lot of that is pretty arbitrary. Mm-hmm. So. People place a lot of importance on things like canon and backstory, and I think that's a really big mistake. Yeah, because I think it makes their work actually less less um, meaningful, less relatable, because it becomes some kind of mythology that you have to invest in. And you know what I what I really want is I want something that you just you don't need to know anything about the backstory, but it's just going to be interesting in the moment enough to to suck you in so um i think that's what um i mean i'm, I'm still interested in doing that and that's the kind of film um and television that interests me when i'm as a, as a viewer mm-hmm. and um i think 
but you know the fact that it still Eon Flux still has a following and people still watch it over and over again and, and they still talk about it. I think in a way has kind of to me it's proven that approach to be the right one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just that <laughs> the, the the culture that we live in I think is very um, reluctant to shift their their paradigm. Yeah, long, uh, more long form stories, but. One thing I liked about Eon Flux is how it's essentially an anthology where it's like, hey, each episode you kind of feel like you missed a whole bunch of stuff that happened in between. It's just like different parts of like, it could be several years in between episodes, could be several days. You know, there's a bigger story going on beyond what you see. Yeah, the point though is to make the the moment that you're watching on screen in the present always interesting. Mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, there are some shows that I've, and I, I won't... I won't name names, but there's there there are shows that are popular that you know that if you come in and try to watch an episode like say in the middle of season three, you'll have no idea. You'll be mm-hmm. completely lost. Like, yeah. and and you'll be unable to understand or appreciate it because it's not interesting in the moment. It all depends on things like lore and you know what happened in the previous episode in order to understand what's happening here. Yeah, you, and. You, uh, yeah. Yeah, you just want like just adventures with these characters. You don't really care about just, you know, planning this this all out. Well, well, uh, I, I, no, well, well, <laughs> well there's a difference, you see. Yeah. The, 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 and this is this is what I'm always at great pains to try to explain, which is that you definitely need a a story, a coherent story to tell. Mm-hmm. The 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 thing is that don't let the fact that you have an ongoing story happening be an excuse for you to make your film not interesting in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to have both. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but very often what I, what I see is that um, a show will focus so much on creating some kind of ongoing narrative um, that they forget to be interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get you. As a, as a, as a viewing experience. Hmm. Do you have any shows that like influence the continuity style for Eon Flux? Like I don't know, I just think heavy metal and stuff. Well, I've mostly been influenced as far as uh, animation goes with with a lot of Japanese shows, mm-hmm. and um, I think that uh, a lot of the Japanese shows managed to do that. They managed to be. Um, what I like about the Japanese shows is that they're they treat animation as 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 film. Well, you, well, you know that's a little ambiguous to a lot of people because what you know I, I'll say that, but people don't understand what that means mm-hmm. very often. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like there's um, more timing and more I don't know, more time to dwell. I guess is how I, I describe it. F- filmmaking to me is all about context. It's all about creating context, mm-hmm. and so it's all about um, defining moments. Through, not through explanation. <laughs> Do you understand the difference between understanding something through exposition and, and understanding something through context? Yeah, of course. Well, so, for example, mm-hmm. I mean, you learn in English class that uh, the way you can learn the meaning of a word is either you can look it up in the dictionary and, and see an explanation of what the word means, yeah. or you can look at the word and see how it's used in context and then go, aha, I understand through through the way that it relates to the words before and after that 
you, you get a sense of what yeah. it means. Like Aeon Flux okay. just let things happen. Like there was not too much exposition too often. Like there was no dialogue in the well, in the shorts. Well, I'm not talking specifically about Aeon Flux. I'm just talking about filmmaking in yeah. general. So the way you tell a story in film is that you have to get the viewer to understand through contextual means and not through exposition. And and that's the problem I have with so much film and television is that mm. they use exposition almost exclusively as opposed to context. Yeah, yeah. And so what, what happens is you get a lot of scenes of people explaining things or there's a, a narrator explaining. Yeah, I understand. That's, it's not cinematic. It's not film. Mm-hmm. So um, everybody understands that you should never explain a joke. If you're, if you're a comedian and you're, you're telling jokes on stage, you should never explain to the audience why it's funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You understand that, yes. right? You agree, and, and I'm guessing you agree with that. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there is a lot of things where, well, I don't know I feel like anime is kind of guilty of this too, where it's just like there is a lot of exposition stopping to explain. There is, yes. Yeah. Currently, with a lot of Japanese animation, that is a problem with a lot of. Um, actually, it's gotten really bad um, <laughs> with shows that I used to like, but. Um, um, what shows would that be? But I'm sorry. What shows would that be? Well, well, like for example, the. The latest Evangelion mm. movies. Yeah, yeah. They're they're absolutely horrible <laughs> because they're nothing but exposition. Yeah, I understand um, that. Yeah. Um, but a good example of somebody who who understands um, contextual storytelling is Miyazaki. Mm-hmm. Um, very often he un- he, un- he he knows that it's much better for you to uh, realize what's happening without explaining it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, um, I think the only movie of his that broke that rule was kind of a Howl's Moving Castle because there was a lot to explain with the the magic. It's about creating moments that, as you're watching it to, yeah. to get the viewer to understand. This is why I compare it to telling a joke. Yeah, I understand. Because <laughs> but, uh, what is it that you understand? <laughs> well, it's just like, hey, let the, visual, let the visuals in context speak for itself. I get that, you know? This is something that I teach. So, so just let indulge me for a moment. Okay. okay. I'm sorry. Okay. So, so very often, what people are looking for when they're watching a movie or watching a TV show is that they're they're hoping to feel something, some kind of emotion. They, they, they're doing it for, and it applies to any form of art, whether it's reading a book or you know going to see a a musical performance or or a film mm-hmm. is that they want some kind of an emotional experience out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is that the reason why a joke is funny is because you make a realization without it being explained to you why something is funny. And when you laugh, it, it's a spontaneous emotional response. The thing that a lot of people do not understand um, and this includes a lot of filmmakers. Not at, not not all filmmakers. As I said, there are there are a lot of filmmakers who are very good at this. But that's what makes a good filmmaker a good filmmaker is that they understand that this does not apply just to humor. It applies to all emotions. So it it applies to feeling sad. It, it applies to feeling angry. It applies to feeling suspense or horror. Is that you should never explain why something is sad or you know why something is. Um, Making making a character angry, or why something is urgent, which is like, for example, um, 
the problem with Evangelion, they're constantly telling you why something has to be done and why, why, why they have to be motivated. You, you should never have to have that explained to you. Mm-hmm. You should always understand it uh, by the context of the event, just in the same way that you, the way you understand the punchline of a joke is, is through having a realization of what makes it funny. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for example, if a, if, a, if a character in a movie scene tells another character, I love you, that's explaining the joke. Like, don't do that. I never want to see that. I want to understand that character A loves character B, not through explanation, but, but through what they do. And yeah. then I can understand, and then I can really feel that emotion. If you tell me I love you, then I'm not feeling it. I'm just hearing somebody say it, and I, I, I just have to take their word for it. Mm-hmm. But in order for me to really genuinely feel something, in the same way that, you know, in order for me to genuinely laugh at a joke, I have to realize it spontaneously. It has to be a real uh, earned emotion. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah. But uh, I do got a bunch of questions if you want me to, to ask them. Yeah, okay, go ahead. All right. Well, hmm. let's see. Well, how would you compare working on the industry back then to now? Well, uh, I, there's a lot of different ways I can answer that. I mean, obviously, there's the, I mean, to me, the least interesting aspect of that, I guess, would be the technology. But it does make a big difference in the sense that uh, turnaround times can be a lot faster. Hmm. So in the old days, you know, you, you would have to draw everything on paper. And then if you, had, if you wanted to make revisions, you'd have to make Xerox copies and then send them through the mail um, and somebody would get, get it a, a, you know, days later. <laughs> hmm. um, you know, obviously, today everything's done over the Internet. And people are working remotely. So everything moves at a faster pace, which is great. Um, and you can make revisions much more easily. Um, that's you know, maybe the least interesting. I think the more interesting aspect of it is that there's so many more venues for animation where people can watch animation and there's a bigger demand for it. There's more people doing it. So, that, so it creates a broader range of uh, subject matter that you can, you can do. Would you, say um, the, oh, would you say the faster turnaround? No, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Would you say the faster turnaround is uh, more stressful or do you feel like you have more time to do things? It gives you more time to do things, for sure. Mm. I mean, I, I remember I used to have to write a script, print it out on, onto paper, and sometimes I would have to, you know, if there's a tight deadline, um, you know, drive it down to the airport <laughs> because they have the fastest mail service. Yeah. <laughs> and get it, on, get it on the next... Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I don't have to bother with that anymore. You can just email it anywhere in the world mm-hmm. so you, at any time. So you feel better working in the industry now instead of the 90s? Yeah, yeah, I, oh. I, I do, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot older now, so uh, maybe I don't have the same energy that I did then, but mm-hmm. um, uh, I don't know that anybody wants to go back to the way things were done then. I mean, you know, th- th- things like painting cells, <laughs> you know, using yeah. paints and brushes... It's like, yeah, um, I don't think we could ever go back to that ever. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, what about the TV shows? I know you, I, I, I know action is still kind of like, there's barely much action, but 
it feels like streaming services are slowly getting to that. Like, do you just prefer the stuff that's on TV now or back then? Well, you know, it's funny. There's a lot more to watch these days, but it, uh, just because I'm so burnt out on TVs and movies in general, I just don't watch very much these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that if I was younger, I would, I would be keeping up with everything a lot, a lot more. But um, I just feel like everything that people are doing, I've it feels like I've seen it all before. Mm. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't find a lot that holds my interest for very long. Dang. Is there any, any current animation that's interesting to you now? Well, again, you know, once in a while, there's a, there'll be a show from Japan that really catches my interest. Uh, one that I saw most recent, even though it's not that recent a show, uh, Inuyashika, uh, Inuyashiki, Inuyashiki, I think is what it's called. In you, uh, Mashiki. Huh. Um, and I, uh, that was the last thing I saw that really, you know, and, and then I, I, I have watched Love, Death, and Robots. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, some of those are great, and some of them are not so great. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, at least it's, at least it's opened up the audience for adult animation adult science fiction animation yeah uh recently there was a one of the writers for love death robots uh, made a, a rotoscoped animated film similar to fire and ice called the spine of night it came out like a few weeks ago you should probably look into that but the spine of night yeah i haven't heard of that i'll, I'll have to look into yeah. it yeah yeah but crap what was i gonna say dang but let me hmm. let me see through the other well you were talking about love death and robots oh yeah and... Um, well, I agree with you. A lot, other of, stuff. a lot of the shorts were just, hey, let's shoot a bunch of stuff in. That's kind of what happens. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, I do have another question. Uh, you, since you mentioned burnout, like in the 2000s, you seem to focus more on CG. Like, was there a time where you're just tired of 2D? Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, you know, to me, my interest in making films had nothing to do with drawing a lot of you know, making things move by drawing a lot of poses and animating them on paper. I mean, that's kind of the only way you were able to animate anything at the time when I started animation. But, um, you know, there's no reason, I think, that anyone would choose to animate by hand if computers existed. I think that, uh, you know, from the beginning of the dawn of animation, the only reason why people resorted to drawing is that they didn't have computers. If they had computers, they would have used computers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's done with this 2D stuff. Well, are you talking about just like in general 2D or just, you know, uh, pa- paper? Well, I'm just talking about drawing drawing your animation frame by frame. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is, uh, you know, which is what traditional 2D animation is, which is that you have to generate every frame yeah. of movement by drawing it and yeah. it's just a really labor intensive way to to you know to create movement mm-hmm. yeah. um you know I, I understand and you know I, and I, I certainly appreciate the art form you know of of great 2d animation and i enjoy watching it but um as something to do as a practice uh i I'm not one of these people who is into the process. I do not enjoy the process of 2D animation. Mm. It's, it, it, the process has nothing to do with my interest in being engaged in it. Hmm. 
Hmm. I'm I'm really only interested in it for what I can do with it. Yeah, you, uh, you just want to tell the story and kind of want to just skip over. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, and Damn. and 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 that's the frustration I have with a lot of animation fans, which is that they focus so much on the process and the technique of 2D animation that they are really not paying attention to the content. Do you just want to? You, and, so you you feel story is more important than the uh, the animation, right? Well, if you put it that way, I mean, that's kind of, um, again, you know, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about story, which is, which is, which is really when you're, when you're watching a film, you think that you're watching a film because you want the story. But to me, it's not about the story. Mm -hmm. It's about the experience. Mm, I get you. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The story is a way of allowing you to have that experience. But once you've had the experience, it's really, um, you can really discard the story hmm, the yeah. story to me is is also is also not not the point i understand you want the emotional experience of the characters yeah hmm. well it's not just an emotional experience um i mean what i said is that you, you know usually that's that's what people are looking for and you want it to have an emotional impact but um the experience also includes insights and um you know, it's also a cerebral process of 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 having your your intellect stimulated. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it, it's intellectual and cerebral as well as emotional. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think that, you know, what people get out of it in the end is, um, you know, it's not what's on the screen. It's it's in a way what they take away from the experience. Yeah. In a way that 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 alters their way of uh, of thinking. I mean, I think that that's a that's a pretty lofty ambition. But you know, to me, that's as, as that's as much as I can hope for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is uh, is affecting the way somebody thinks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, want me to ask questions about like I do have a bunch more questions. Um, if, if we can talk about like your earliest work, I believe it's Fire and Ice. You were a you worked on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I worked on Fire and Ice. Uh, that was my first professional job. Mm -hmm. um, I'd always been a big fan of Ralph Bakshi and mm -hmm. Frank Frazetta, so that was like a dream project for me <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Like, were you straight out of high, of uh, college or what? I had just finished my my second year at CalArts. Mm -hmm. um, my second year at CalArts, which was actually my... my uh, the last year that I went there, I, 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 I went to college for two years and then started working. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. But you went on to work on a bunch of stuff, like commercials and stuff. And, like, do you think we'll, like, do you have any of those commercial reels still saved? Well, people ask me about where they can see better quality versions yeah. of some of those commercials. And um, the thing is, people, <laughs> people don't remember this, but, you know, um, Standard definition TV um, was the standard. Mm -hmm. there, there, were, there was no such thing as HDTV, and so those 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 commercials were never they were never produced to be seen on an on an HDTV. And so yeah. you look at them now on your computer, and they seem very very low resolution. But that's the way that they were. That's the way they were made, and that's the way they were aired on television. Yeah, well, there's still some that are just, like, still compressed to hell thanks to YouTube. So it's like someone out there has to have, like, a better VHS copy. 
Yeah. Well, I do have uh, digital masters mm. of them, but you know, still compared to an HD master, they're not. You know, they're still. Um, I think they may be six forty by four eighty. Oh, it's still pretty good compared to what you may find on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, moving on. Uh, let's see. You you worked on Transformers the movie and the series, and you want to explain what uh, what character you worked on? Well, I wasn't working on a character as I mean, an animator, if that's what you mean. I I, I was a storyboard artist, so yeah. you're not really working on Sorry. any particular character. Yeah. Yeah. You're just but, taking whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, my friend Izzy, who was who was supposed to be here, they're a big Transformers fan, and I'm sure they would have appreciated that you worked on that uh, planet monster thing. <laughs> I'm not a Transformers fan, so I don't know the name of it. Unicron, yeah. Unicron. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it was... Uh, well, okay, I, I guess I, in order to explain my involvement in that, um, I had worked... After working at, on Fire and Ice at Bakshi, I went to work at uh, Disney Studios in development. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess... I guess people should know that most of the projects that are, are developed in a studio like Disney's, um, especially at the time when I was working there, which was the early 80s, uh, a lot of stuff does ne- never just never gets made. Mm-hmm. It gets developed, but it doesn't get made. So everything mm-hmm. that I worked on, and I was there for two years, um, none of it ever got ever got produced. So I only worked in development, which was fun to do, but after a while it's frustrating because you want some actual production experience. And so um, I left Disney, and then um, working in TV was great because uh, it's just the opposite. It's like you can't produce enough for them. Like With with features, um, so much of your work gets wasted. In television, nothing gets wasted. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you're... You're on such tight deadlines that uh, Just get it out. You know, yeah. yeah, so um, you know you're working overtime to to make the schedule. So um, it was a it was a good experience to get a lot of fast paced production experience. Right. Um, right. You know, and it was a difficult show. I mean, Transformers was, was a very difficult show <laughs> because it, it involved a lot of characters and yeah, those characters uh, are very detailed. A lot of difficult drawing um so it involved a lot of having to learn to draw things that i didn't necessarily enjoy drawing but you know i would recommend to anybody who's starting out that they force themselves to draw stuff that they don't want to draw but um, it's going to help you like i was never good at drawing cars for instance but mm-hmm. i had to draw a lot of cars <laughs> yeah because uh... so yeah. On, on social media, there's a lot of people who do commissions, like say, "Hey, pay me a bunch of money, pay, pay me like thirty dollars, and I'll draw you something." But no, this, no mechas, no robots. Like, there's a lot of people who do not want to draw mechs or robots, and you basically had to do that for Transformers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, but then I know people who want to draw just that. So, mm-hmm. um. But, uh, but I, I wanted to learn it to draw everything, and so doing storyboards was good. So um, the problem with a lot of uh, working in the American animation industry is that uh, if you're working on a union job, then you're very restricted as to what you, you're allowed to do. So if you're a character designer, you can't draw props or vehicles or backgrounds. Hmm. And um, I 
I wanted to draw everything. I wanted to draw characters and backgrounds and and props. And uh, so storyboarding, you know, in that sense was 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 a good thing to get into. Even though um, I did work as a character designer also on on, on other shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, oh, going back to the um, stuff that never got made. Uh, are there any particular projects you wish got made that you were working on? At Disney, in general, no, not. Oh, in general, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of my a lot of my work because I enjoy the process of creating. I enjoy. I don't enjoy the process of production so much, but I do enjoy the process of <laughs> development and creating stories and creating characters. Yeah. Um, so a lot of my work in my career has been in development, and a lot of the things that I've worked developing. Uh, didn't end up getting produced. And, um, you know, that's good up to a point uh, because you're learning every time. But as I said, to me, it's not about the process in the end, even though I do enjoy the process of development. Um, Mm. And I don't like the process of production. But um, uh, it's, it's really all about producing an end result and having an end result that, that, you know, is, is, is going to affect people. I see, I see you worked on uh, Gendy's Popeye. Can you talk about that? You know, that was just... I, I literally worked on that for something like two weeks. Oh. Um, and um, I knew Gendy from Cartoon Network. because mm-hmm. he, he was hanging out there, and I was um, I was working on Fire Breather at the mm. time. And uh, so, yeah, when I, uh, when I learned that he was... Um, Making Popeye, you know, you know, being a Popeye fan, I I, I thought it'd be a fun project to, to be involved in. Um, as I worked on it, though, I realized that uh, <laughs> it maybe wasn't such a great idea to turn Popeye into a CG movie. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, I love the old Fleischer cartoons, and I think they're perfect the way they are. And um, I don't, I I just didn't see that there was any kind of demand for a Popeye movie like I don't see why any kid would well here's here's the thing that at the studio it seemed like they were struggling with this problem which is that okay we want to be true to the original Popeye and the original character and the original world and the style Mm -hmm. but you know the original Popeye was set in the 1920s or 30s yeah um and so are you going to be true to the setting of the original so are you going to make a show about a a sailor that's set in the 1920s. Or are they going to give him a smartphone? Or, yeah, or are you going to update it? And so they were really kind of going back and forth on that, and they kind of ended up creating this kind of um, non-specific uh, setting, which, mm. you know, um, uh, yes. where a lot, a lot of things, like, reminded you of the 1930s, and but there were other th- aspects of it that were more contemporary. And it, it just... It just didn't um, seem to know what it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it just. It, I th- I think that the people at the studio got the sense that. Um, uh, that they just didn't. You know, their love a... of Popeye. I think I think that they they didn't they didn't want to update it, but at the same time they, they I think that they understood that if you did update it, that you know it wouldn't. It'd be kind of pointless to, to make a Popeye movie that was updated. Yeah, it was, it was hard to keep it true to the original, is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. Mm-hmm. 
And at least that's, that's certainly the way I felt as I was working yeah. on it. Yeah. Hmm. But were there any other projects? I see you had a Cyborg 009. Like, did they come to you to make to develop that kind of show? Yeah, yeah. So the um, the, the, the people who... Are you familiar with the, those characters? That I watched a few episodes of us, the the 2000s show. Yeah, I mean every every ten years or so they do a revival of it. I mean it's it's a classic. I mean everybody in Japan knows yeah. it, and I grew up with it. Mm -hmm. The original, the original 1960s version. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I I loved it as a kid. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, the the. The people who had the rights, I guess the Ishinomori um, estate uh, was interested in making something that was for a world audience, not just for the Japanese audience. But the, So they, um, they contacted a producer, and the producer contacted me and asked me to uh, write a treatment. So I wrote a treatment, and I'm actually very happy with the treatment, the way, I, the way it turned out. And... Uh, maybe someday, you know, maybe <laughs> by the time they make the fifth or sixth, you know, re reboot of of those characters, that that uh, maybe I'll, I'll uh, get a chance to, to to get that one made. But they they did make one in CG. Um, hmm. I don't know, maybe about ten years ago. Um, it, I I didn't think it was very good, but it it was too realistic. It it, it didn't stay true to the yeah. Ishinomori style. Uncanny. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But is there any properties you wish you could work on in your own style? My, my own projects that I've developed. Well, with, you know, there, there are several of those. Well, like a, um, simple. You know, a pre-existing IP that, you know, some... some a pre-existing one? Yeah. Well, the Cyborg 009 one would be probably the top of that. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Uh, since I, I mean, since I was a fan of that, and I, I, I did a lot of work on it. But... Mm -hmm. uh, in general, no. I guess I'll answer your question that way because um, sometimes I, I have been asked to work on shows like superhero shows and things like that, and you know I'm just not interested in <laughs> be doing you know the hundredth version of Batman or yeah, Superman yeah. or Spider Man. Hmm. Um, there's so many people doing that, and I'm just you know I'll. I'll, 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 I'll I, I I don't want to piss off a lot of people, but 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 I, but I'll just say honestly, I'm just I'm just tired of superheroes. Yeah, that's understandable. I guess we can go back to further down your uh, career. How about uh, working on the Rugrats? What was that like? Because besides that being the reason why you worked on Aeon Flux, like, did you enjoy the rug working on Rugrats? I enjoyed it in the sense that it was uh, my first my first time directing. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I saw it as a huge challenge to create a world where it's really the world seen through the the eyes of a baby, mm -hmm. and so it gave me a chance to really explore a, uh, a very a, a, a visually rich, put it that way, mm -hmm. um, that perspective. cinematic, yeah, cinematic point of view, cinematic perspective. Yeah, like so I worked on the. So I worked on the development of it, you know, including designing some of the main characters and then doing the pilot episode, which got the series sold to Nickelodeon in the first place, and then um, and then doing the opening titles. But then beyond that, I really didn't work on the on the on the regular series at all. Mm -hmm. So um, I um, uh, I don't know, you know. How, how, <laughs> 
I, I, I wasn't interested in, again, as, as I said before, I'm not really in, interested in the process of production. And so I like the development stage where you're creating something new. Mm-hmm. And so once that part of it is done, I, I kind of wanted to move on. I didn't yeah. really want to work on you're done with the, this. the daily grind. Yeah. Don't care about babies. Yeah. But, um, yeah, because um, cause that was the reason why you wanted to work on Aeon Flux. You wanted to create it where it's like these babies were too limited. That was the story, right? Yeah, it was, it was partly that. But also I was working at a studio up in San Francisco called Colossal. And they were producing a lot of station IDs for MTV. Mm-hmm. And so they pitched this liquid TV idea to them. And it was supposed to be an anthology of animation that you could only see on MTV. And the whole idea of it was that it was animation aimed at an older audience, which is, you know, comparatively um, to Nickelodeon. It's, uh, it's, it's a young adult audience and it's going to be late at night. So um, it was a chance to do all the things that I was told I couldn't do, you know, working on mm-hmm. kids shows. Yeah. Cause um, there was not much anime in America at the time. So this was like one of the, first few things people uh, a lot of teenagers got exposed to just violent adult animation right yeah i mean <laughs> you know it's, it's funny that you included the word violent there but the thing is um a lot of people at the time were asking themselves well, what is this animation for adults going to be i mean how do we define that and so the first thing that people i think uh the first thing that pops into their mind is that oh we, you know it can be more there can be more sex and violence. Mm-hmm. But that isn't really the thing that makes something more adult. Yeah. Um, to, you know, to, to me, I mean, you kind of want to hit those uh, buttons, but um, to me, it's really about telling stories that are more ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Because my experience in working in kids' TV is that everything had to be very morally black and white. And you have good guys and you have bad guys. Yeah, Aeon's not really um, a, a good guy necessarily. Right, exactly. Not, not, and that was the point. That's what interested me about it. And it, the, you know, the fact that she looks sexy and there's there's violence. I mean, to me, that's kind of a way to get you to watch it. Mm-hmm. But that's really not what the sh- what the what what the concept of the show was. It was really more about telling stories that are not morally black and white. Yeah, because sometimes it seems like Aeon's the good good guy and then there's sometimes where it's like oh these uh these generic uh, pawns just got killed and now you feel bad for them yeah so it's what i was saying earlier which is that um getting you to understand contextually mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, how to understand the meaning of what you're watching as opposed to it ever being explained to you and you know and the fact that i did it without dialogue i think um really worked to make it something that people would watch again and again. Because the, the, the thing about MTV is that they wouldn't just show it once. They would show it constantly. Mm-hmm. And they, they would repeat it over and over and over again. And I knew that they were going to do that. And I wanted to make something that um, if you happened to be watching MTV and it came up again, you wouldn't go, oh, I already saw this and you know, switch the channel. You'd be like, oh, I saw this and I want to see it again now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, you know, I... I think that that strategy worked in that case. Yeah. At what point did you realize Eon Flux was a, was a success? Well, MTV at the time, they were 
just starting to create their own original programming because traditionally, I, I don't know how old you are, but you know, 29. MTV traditionally was a station where they just played music videos. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't produce their own content. They, they, um, it, was, it was more like a radio station where they played bands. Mm-hmm. And, um, but when they started to produce their own content, they uh, started focus grouping a lot of their original material. And um, based on their focus groups, Eon Flux tested very well. Um, and the thing that really motivated them to want to spin it off was that it tested very well for both male and female audiences. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the few things that, that tested equally well um, for both. And so that's why they, they, they ordered the series. Hmm, yeah, that's good. Hmm. But uh, let's see. What else do I got? Oh, when it got a series, the I, yeah, the broadcast version is different from the DVD version. What's yeah? You know, yeah, like li- the lighting's different. I noticed. I know you added lighting, but I also did you change some of the voices? There was one voice that I never was happy with in the original version, so we did re- re-record one voice in one episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I don't think anybody's complained about that. That you know, it, it's a it's a tricky thing because, you know, people watch something on TV and that's the version that they're used to. And when you tamper with it or, you know, you, you keep working on it, I'll, I'll put it that way. You're not really tampering with it. The idea is, the thing is, TV stations have air dates and mm-hmm. you have to meet those air dates. And um, you'll be working on a show up until the very last moment. It doesn't mean that when you hit that air date that you're done working on the show. It's just that, you know, the network forces you to stop and say, okay, well, mm-hmm. we're going to take this away from you and then we're going to air it. Yeah. I, I think... and, um, and, and so with the DVDs, it was a chance to go back and actually finish the episodes the way that, that I had intended originally to mm-hmm. like the director's um, cut. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because I think back to the that one George Lucas quote that basically said, uh, pff, "Movies aren't finished; they're abandoned." Yeah, yeah, you know, it's not just it's not true of just movies. You know, it's like any form of art, mm-hmm. any painting or any you know, uh, screenplay or uh, yeah, it, it it's. Uh, and I think maybe a lot of audiences don't understand this, but if you're a creative person um, who 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 writes a lot of a, a lot of original material, like you you realize that you know you can keep you can keep working on it and tinkering on it forever, and um, you know you're still involved in uh, in the same activity as as as. Uh, in other words, you're not doing anything different from <laughs> from what you were doing when you stopped working on it mm-hmm. at the point where people started to see it. Yeah. And that's what they think is, is, is the end result. But it's not really so much an end result as being just seeing the work at the point where um, the market demanded that it be released. Yeah, but these people aren't working on deadlines, so yeah. How would you describe your own art style? You know, I don't... I don't uh, answer that question 
<laughs> because um, I think it's a mistake to hmm. uh, um, let's put it this way um, to to make up a style for your art because hmm. that's not what that's not what style is. Um, do something the best you can in your own way, and that becomes your style. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I get you. You just let it. Just let whatever comes out. Just let that be it. Yeah. Well, the the way I draw is the way that feels natural to me, and the way that looks right to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that people, um, looking at it, will notice things that are idiosyncratic or unique about that way of doing it but it has nothing to do with me trying to make it look unique it's mm -hmm. just that's the way i do it yeah and that's the way it feels natural to me so when somebody else comes along and then they they try to adjust their own way of doing it in a way that's influenced by somebody else's style then that's not authentic is is that you shouldn't do that um <laughs> I mean, you can be influenced by other artists whose work inspires you, but um, um, in order to in in order to be, um, the, the, I guess what I'm saying is that there's a, there's a there's a, a lot of misunderstanding about what style means. Hmm. Um, well, I guess the way I see it is you're just basically mixing a bunch of things you like together and trying to see how you would do it. Okay. Maybe that doesn't make any <laughs> I'm sense. Not, Never I'm, mind. Not, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand what you mean by that. Never but, mind. Um, I'm not going to explain stuff. Sorry. Um, well, the, the, there are two aspects to it. So, so, you know, for me, it's much more important to avoid um, it looking like something that I don't like than making it positively trying to make it look like something that I do like. Mm -hmm. So in, in other words, if I find myself drawing something and it starts to remind me of something else, um, then I try to steer away from that. And, and in, in that sense, style can be an influence, a negative influence. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, but the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the things that are unique about the way I draw people for example is um it's not because i'm trying hard to make my people look like unique uh like they're drawn in a unique style it's mm -hmm. that's that's just the way i draw mm -hmm. so so um you know and that's true for anybody who's who you know who's, who's a who's a true artist so um you know and it, it doesn't apply just to drawing it applies to musicians it'll, it'll apply to a, a guitar player you know You'll have a guitarist who tries to play in somebody else's style, but don't do that. Like, mm -hmm. just, um, just let your style come the, to you, I guess. Play in the way that you, you try to play to the best of your ability, and your own inevitable idiosyncrasies will come out mm -hmm. while you're trying to do your best, and that becomes your style. That's what style is. That's what authentic style is. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not something you make up. So if you try to make it up, then it's not... And it's not authentic. So yeah. I'll give an example. I mean, this is an example that I, I, I give often because it's one that comes up often. But um, if you watch, like I, li I like old film noirs, mm -hmm. but you have to understand that when people were making film noirs back in the 40s or 50s, mm -hmm. 
is that there was no such thing as a film noir style. Mm -hmm. They were just making films in the way that felt the most natural and the most expressive. Yeah. And the most, you know, and in the best way that they could. And then somebody like a French critic in the 1960s came along later and, and noticed certain, certain similarities in the way these films um, looked and the way they felt Mm -hmm. and gave it a, a label yeah, and then yeah. it became known as a film noir style. But so if somebody today sets out to make something in a film noir style, mm-hmm. they're, they're appropriating something <laughs> that's that was, not their own. Yeah. Something that was just natural so, back so, then. Yeah. So, 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 um, um, yeah. So what I'm saying is don't do that. <laughs> yeah. I get you. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm trying just, to say? Just let the style come to you. <laughs> because, because yeah. in, in the same way that, they, that film noir directors were just making films in a way that felt natural to them at the time. Yeah, like if you make something that is just natural and you know to the best of your ability and you're doing it today, like 30 years later, somebody's going to look at back on that and say, oh, wow, I really like the style of this. It's, Even though you had no intention of creating a style, you were just doing the best you yeah. could. It's a but somebody thirty years from now is going to look at that and say, "Oh wow, this really has this very interesting, it's... you know, twenty twenties style." Yeah, yeah. But that's what style is. Is is you know, for for style to be authentic, is it? It really has to be unconscious. Yeah. This, uh... if, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so, this, this well. reminds me. Like, uh, you ever notice that a lot of a lot of uh, American cartoons are doing? I don't know. It feels like there's a lot more reliance on references or just like shot for shot essentially remakes like... yeah 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 it annoys me yeah. don't do that, <laughs> don't do that. i understand don't do that. And, and 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 you know and, and with with the anime like anime has become a style and 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 you'll see like american animation productions like try to do something in an anime style mm-hmm. and like don't do that <laughs> yeah this uh also reminds me like with eon flux's uh future setting like it doesn't look like any other future setting i can think of it's you know everyone else does does the blade runner thing and you kind of have like this concrete oil refinery future with tentacles or whatever i don't know how to describe it yeah that's what i also appreciate of the show well a lot of that i mean that i i guess i i look at it a little differently but um i've never been interested very much in atmosphere mm-hmm. as a as a visual artist and so, um, like using lots of lights and shadows, um, you know, my work, my 2D work is very flat looking. And, and that's, I think, um, and that is definitely a deliberate choice, but, it, but it's also one that is intrinsic to the medium because it, it's, a, it's, it's an unnatural and, how shall I say it? It's, uh, it kind of defeats the, the advantage of working in 2D animation to add a lot of shadows and atmosphere, because mm. um, what what's beautiful about 2D animation is that it's it's the clear line. It's 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 the, the um, yeah, traditional classical 2D animation understood this, um, and there are some illustrators like Mobius, for example. I'm very influenced by Mobius as well, mm. but Mobius and Hergé, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, use what's known as a uh, ligne claire, which means clear line mm-hmm. in French. Yeah. Um, but if you look at their work, it's very descriptive. Um, 
it's a very neutral kind of descriptive approach as opposed to an atmospheric approach where you're using a lot of heavy shadows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see the influence. Um, yes, the, the scratchiness. Was there anything that was too violent or any or you just couldn't do on MTV for Aeon Flux or any other any other productions you worked on? Yeah, I mean, uh, in the end, I fought them on Aeon Flux, especially on the Liquid TV ones. Uh, they, I got notes back saying that they didn't want all that blood, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I fought them on that. They wanted to suggest that it was oil or something like that. But, <laughs> The the soldiers that she was shooting were robots. And, <laughs> oh yeah, and it would completely defeat the whole purpose of mm-hmm. what that was. So um, I managed in that instance to uh, get them to let me do it. But then um, when it came to the half hour show, then you do really have to answer to their sponsors and and to the uh, standards and practices people, and so they. They were very, very demanding. Hmm. So, um, so um, but at that point, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, is that the show was never really about being able to show a lot of violence. I wasn't really interested in that. I mean, in a way, it's kind of a, a, a trick to get people to watch it, but it was never about the violence. It was really about mm-hmm. creating morally ambiguous narratives. And so... Um, I took that as a challenge because they did re- they did severely restrict the amount of violence that you could show mm-hmm. on the half hour shows to the point where um, she was not allowed to point her gun at anybody. <sighs> oh, so boy. if if you notice this, if you notice in the show, if you're watching it, is that um, if she's if there's a shot where she's holding a gun and there's another character in the shot. She's never allowed to point the gun at the, <laughs> the other person. She always has to be. It always has to be pointing up or away. Um, she can she can point the gun at somebody as long as the other character is not in the shot. <laughs> mm, now I have to rewatch that because now it's like, damn, that's gonna ruin everything. Oh no. Um, um, oh, and th- there were all kinds of like restrictions like that, which were absurd, but. Um, and that's also why we had to change the design of her gun. So, for example, in the Liquid TV shorts, she had a she had a, a like a normal gun that shot bullets mm-hmm. and you know that that ejected shells. But with the half hour show, they said to me that um, you know they're afraid of people emulating what they um, see yeah. the, a character on a show. So th- she wasn't allowed to have a real gun that shot bullets, and so we had to come up with a. a, a a fantastical kind of design oh. for her gun that didn't look like a real actual gun and hmm. didn't shoot bullets. It shoot it shot these little darts mm-hmm. with these little needle um, needle projectiles. Um, yeah, sounds. But you know, I, you know, that was fine with me. I and mean, we again, as I said, it was never it, it, the kind of gun. It's not that important. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it did it, annoy it, me that she was never allowed to point it at anybody because I mean. <laughs> It's kind of what she does. Yeah. <laughs> well, it got the yeah. job done, this needle gun. Yeah. But yeah. did you prefer working on the half-hour series or the shorts more? Well, it was a, they, they were completely different. So mm-hmm. um, uh, on, the, on the Liquid TV shorts, it was a small amount of time to fill, but, um, on, but on a low budget. 
Mm-hmm. So I had to do as much of it as possible by myself. So I ended up doing a lot of the drawing and animating mm-hmm. myself yeah. and going overseas and, and you know, um, being involved in every aspect of it. When you're working on a half-hour show, it's a large volume of work and you have to work with a lot of people and you kind of have to let go of a lot of the things mm-hmm. that you would like to do. You just It's just impossible to yeah. do it all. That, that's what so, I'm learning. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I really made the decision to really not focus on the visuals so much as on the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so I, I spent a lot of time working on the stories and writing the scripts and, and then working on the storyboards. Um, but in a sense, I, it, it was painful to have to give up control over the, uh, the drawings that were actually going to appear on the screen. Um, mm-hmm. But as I said, you know, to me, I was less interested in reaching the animation fan audience than just a regular audience that would just watch a regular mm-hmm. half-hour drama um, that happened to be animated. I mean, I was much more interested in getting that audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, who had no interest in the fact that it was animated, but just that it told interesting stories. Mm-hmm. And um, in the end... Um, you know, there used to be a an online forum where I would interact with uh, fans of the show, and I what I really loved about that was that um, it really got a lot of discussion going on um, with people who were really interested in talking about the story and about the characters and about the ideas. Yeah, like different interpretations um, and stuff. And not and not talking about the animation because mm-hmm. I find talking about animation to be pretty boring and <laughs> tedious and, yeah. and, and honestly not that interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. But it seems like animation fans, it's like, that's what they want to talk about. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Yeah. You just, yeah, I, I understand this. Hmm. But uh, would you ever want to return to Aeon Flux? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I did do some development on some, um, some re I, I don't want to say reboot but but uh just some Reviving. different versions of the on flux mm-hmm. one was for the heavy metal movie oh, and one yeah. was for a, a proposed uh home video version like a i, I was interested in, in doing a a standalone a video feature um yeah and I, I actually proposed this to MTV at the time when the movie was coming out, the live-action movie was coming out. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't enough time, and the, you know the financing was going to be. Um, yeah. We, we, anyway, I, <laughs> I have a my way of answering the questions. I have a lot of material that I've written. Yeah, you want to come back? Yes. Hasn't been produced, and so yes, I would like I would like the chance to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that I will at some point, um, but it's not the first thing on my agenda. I I think that um, excuse me, I have a I have a new original project that I want to get made, mm-hmm. um, and and that's the more pressing and urgent thing. So mm-hmm. um, if if I do that and that's successful, then that'll give me the the um, <laughs> open more doors. Chance, yeah. The, the credibility, the whatever. whatever yeah, I'd you love to, to call see it. what you have planned going on, but uh, hmm. 
I, well, the thing is, I think that there's still this perception of Jan Flux as being somewhat cultish and um, being, as I said, a, a niche audience. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you're, you're never making something for a limited audience when you're making it. You know, I, you're always making something, you know, with the hope that it's going to be as popular as possible. But mm-hmm. um, at the same time, you don't want to you don't want to compromise your ideas to the point where, you know, it's no longer what you wanted to make. You know, because you're catering so much to um, a popular expectation. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I, I, you know, as I said, I, I have this original project and I have several others, in fact. Um, and uh, we'll see. I mean, I, uh, I, it's been interesting being on this Instagram and seeing how people are... Um, well, there, there, there seems to be some, there seems to be some interest or appetite for uh, new projects mm-hmm. from me. So, um, I'm, I'm really trying to figure out how to uh, use Instagram and Patreon and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because for the longest time, I wanted to like get you for an interview, and it's like, dang. Uh, Peter Chung has no contacts. Well, guess that guess that won't happen. Whew. But yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I do have another question that I've always wanted to ask. Um, in the uh, Dark Fury uh, Chronicles of Riddick movie, how come it randomly switched to Robert Valley's art style? <laughs> because it was Robert Valley. Yeah, that's a good. I, 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 did, I, I didn't want to. I didn't. You know, so I. I realized later that some people were bothered by that. Um, to me, I thought it was, it made the scene much more exciting. Yeah, I loved but, it. Uh, you know, and it was perfect the way it was. Where it's like, why would I want to, why would I want to redraw Robert Valley's stuff? Yeah. It's, like, it's so jarring when I watched it, but it's like, oh, snap, it's Robert Valley. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. I mean, I guess it can be jarring uh, to some audiences if the drawing style changes like that. Um, it seems like, you know, maybe with a uh, within one episode of a show, if it if it had all been drawn like Robert, I would have been happier, I guess. <laughs> but you know, he was just one person, and I had a lot of animators, and they all drew in their own ways. Um, mm-hmm. Ideally. Animators should be allowed to draw in their own way and um, not be uh, one. one In a way of answering your question earlier about you know switching to CG like with Fire Breather Mm -hmm. and Animatrix is that um, you don't have to worry about maintaining a consistent drawing quality, a drawing style, and so. one of the things that I dislike about the process, as I said, I dislike the process of 2D animation. And one of the, one of the things that I really dislike about the process of working in 2D animation is, is having to make all of the drawings look consistent with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, because that runs counter to you know what is the, the beauty of hand-drawn 2D animation, which is the expressive qualities of the individual animator. Yeah. Was... And... To to fix everything and put it on model, um, you know, it's a huge 
it's a huge pain in the ass to do that. And you're, you're not making the work better. You're, you know, you're, you're making it worse. <laughs> well, um... So, so um, the ideal thing to do would be to create a show and design a show in such a way that it enables the style of the drawing to change from sequence to sequence, depending mm. on who is drawing it. Yeah, this is a... And, um, oh. um, Ren and Stimpy kind of did some of that. Mm -hmm. um, there are some Japanese shows that do that. Like, Fleekly is one of them. Oh, and, mm -hmm. uh, um, there are some others. There's a USA show. Um, but... Um, well, I would like to bring people up... People have less of a problem with that with comic books. So if you get like a different issue of a Batman comic and it's drawn by Neil Adams and you have one that's drawn by, I don't know, um, Adam Hughes or whoever, uh, uh, Alex Ross, or somebody who has a different drawing style. I mean, people, that readers just accept that the same character can be drawn a hundred different ways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But it seems like when it comes to animation, uh, there's much less acceptance of that idea. Yeah, there's a lot of people that are like to point out, "Hey, Steven Universe, the art, the characters completely change d depending on the shot or whatever." Yeah, so it's I don't know, it's such a it's, I don't know, there's a lot of controversy behind that. Just people angry about that about off models. It's it's a lot of I guess. I can well, you know, it's maybe partly the studios themselves who are to blame for. Or building that kind of expectation, hmm. um, uh, like for wanting I mean, within reason. I think that uh, you know, an animated show should give allowances for characters to be drawn differently depending on who's drawing them. Yeah, like the show Flapjack did that a lot. Hmm. But you know, the the old uh, Warner Brothers cartoons, you could you could tell like hmm. when different animators. Drew Bugs Bunny, for example. Yeah. Um, so, um, but, um, you know, as long as it's all good. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, you don't want the drawing suddenly to turn bad. Yeah, yeah. As long as it looks competent, I guess you mean. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that... Um, I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't know what you can do about it, but um, maybe expose animation audiences to the idea that that's acceptable. Yeah, I hopefully. I try to, yeah. Yeah, but uh, hmm. I guess more questions unless you, you can leave any time. You can tell me when to stop, but I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll, follow, I'll follow up. I mean, I can end on this. Uh, so you, I listened to your conversation with Diego Molano, who created uh, Victor and Valentino, mm -hmm. and I was working on that show. Um, I was surprised you didn't mention this, but the the reason why I worked on that show is that they asked me to do the opening title sequence. Mm -hmm. So I I did the opening title sequence, and um, I stayed on as the uh, timing director. But then, um, as I was working on it. <laughs> I got frustrated with a lot of the episodes, and so um, towards the end of the series, or at at the current stage, which I think we're on, we're on season three, um, I asked Diego 
if he would let me write and direct an episode on my own. And so he said yes. And so that's the most recent thing that I've done. I'm still actually working on it. I mean, I, mm. I, I finished with all the pre-production and it's about to go into animation. We're oh, about boy. to ship it overseas. But that that's going to be something that um, I think is going to be an interesting... I mean, to, to follow up on what we were just talking about, because he allowed me to redraw the characters, Victor and Valentino, in my own way. Hmm. And so I did my own model sheets for for them, and I've um, contacted some of my favorite Korean animators to work on it. So it should be it, it it's going to be a, a different looking episode from, from um, the typical. That sounds exciting. Um, yeah, I'm excited about it. I think it's uh, it's also going to be the only episode that has no dialogue in it. Huh. So it's gonna it's gonna be very much like it was very much like going back to. Liquid TV on Flux days um, of uh, telling a story without any dialogue. Man, I, I really want to see whatever this is. Yeah. <laughs> so look out for that. Um, yeah. I, I think it'll be done sometime uh, by s- spring, summer next year, whenever that whenever it comes out. Mm-hmm. Okay. But is that all you <laughs> you have time for? <laughs> Yeah, so we've been talking for a while. Uh, I don't know if you have any other questions. Uh, hmm. Okay, um, well, it's a quick one, but uh, Tomb Raider, like you worked on a Tomb Raider thing, and what, was GameTap trying to make more animated projects, if you remember that? Well, I think it was the, I can't remember what it was, the 15th or the 20th. It was some anniversary of yeah. uh, the birth of Tomb Raider, and so they wanted to celebrate by doing... Um, the animation different, Bullet different, yeah so it's sort of like the idea of animatrix again mm-hmm. well animatrix kind of um kicked off a lot of projects that are like that where mm-hmm. you, you 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 take a well-known property or a character and you um do different animated interpretations mm-hmm. so that's what that was and um uh it was mainly it was mainly to promote GameTap, yeah. I think. I think so, yeah, because that 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 was like Netflix before Netflix, essentially, but for games. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but I guess that's all. But I I, I, I I did enjoy working on that because um, they gave me a lot of creative freedom. The, the, the whole idea there was to do something to, to to put to put an individualistic spin on a well-known character. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, if you want me to talk about it, I mean, I you know people people really focus on things like the style, but to me, it was really about you know trying to tell an interesting Tomb Raider story. I was really much more interested in what the story was, and and uh, what always bothered me about stories like Tomb Raider, but it also applies to things like Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. is that you're dealing with supernatural relics that have real power and what (laughs) if it turned out that some old testament relic actually had supernatural power then it would in a way it should change the world Mm -hmm. because it would prove that that god exists and uh that that religion was true and all the claims and the beliefs were true but it seems like those those movies and those stories never really explore that that um, 
implication of their stories. Yeah, like the, the world does not change. It, it's just a <laughs> MacGuffin, just like yeah, let's go find this thing. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just, um, uh, and so I wanted to, I wanted to take that idea and 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 see what would actually happen if you know how re- how religious leaders would <laughs> react to yeah. things like um, their religion being challenged by showing, like in the case of my Tomb Raider episode, it was a. a the, an Egyptian relic mm. turns out to have actual power and therefore proving that the Egyptian gods were real mm-hmm. and if the Egyptian gods are real then you know uh, the monotheistic religions are not real because uh, they deny the existence of <laughs> other gods so that's what that story was about yeah so much to tell in just like two shorts essentially but uh, you want to say goodbye to the audience and stuff like uh... yeah so thanks Thanks for inviting me onto your podcast and uh, enjoyed talking about animation and, yeah. you know, wish you the best of luck and um, I'll look out for interesting takes on <laughs> things <laughs> happening in animation. Uh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm excited to see what, what uh, you got coming up. So, yeah, thanks for joining me. Goodbye, everyone. Yeah. Okay, goodbye. Devices of Eon Flux, the featurette, investigation, the history of Eon Flux, including interviews with Peter Chung and cast. A look at other works by Peter Chung, as well as classic shorts from MTV's groundbreaking animated series, Liquid Television, and much, much more. Eon Flux, the complete animated collection, coming soon. Take her home, but be careful.